Amen. But during the announcements this morning, I, I mentioned that Ash Wednesday is just around the corner. It's two Wednesdays away, which means that we're coming to the end of the season of Epiphany. There is today and next Sunday, and then comes Lent. We've been saying that the season of Epiphany is a season of discovery, specifically a season dedicated to the discovery of Jesus Christ. The Gospel accounts, Luke being the only exception with his lone story about Jesus at 12 years old in the temple, the Gospel accounts jump from Jesus' birth to the beginning of his ministry. So if you're wondering... Whatever became of that baby whose birth was surrounded by such cosmic fanfare and quiet maternal anticipation, well, the accounts of his his early ministry answer that question for you. So we have focused our attention on these early accounts of Jesus' ministry during this season of Epiphany, and we have been reading them while asking ourselves, who is this Jesus Christ? And this morning we come to a story that has admittedly always confused me. It's the calling of the first disciples. It was read for you just a few minutes ago. It's not a complicated storyline. The story is basically that Jesus was walking along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee when he first spotted Andrew and Peter fishing. And he called to them, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately... They left their nets and followed him. And it continues with Jesus resuming his long walk on the beach with Peter and Andrew, his newly acquired entourage, in tow. And a little further down the shore, the three of them spot two brothers fishing, this time James and John, along with their father Zebedee. And again, Jesus calls to them, although we don't get the content of what he said this time, presumably it was the same thing he said to Peter and Andrew, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And again, we are told that immediately James and John left the boat and their father and followed Jesus. And there the story stops. The next verse, verse 23, begins a a summary capturing the, the ministry of Jesus in Galilee and how his fame spread throughout the region. But the story stops with this immediate response. And like I said, it's not a complicated storyline, and yet it's always confused me. I wonder if it's confused you as well. The confusing part to me is Matthew's use of the word immediately to describe the response of the first apostles to the call of Jesus. Immediately is a preferred word in the fast-moving gospel of Mark. Everything happens immediately for Mark. He has the attention span of a squirrel. But Matthew, Matthew uses the word more sparingly, and he intentionally chooses to use it to describe the response of these first apostles to the call of Jesus in our story this morning. Immediately, they left their nets and their family and followed him. Matthew provides us with no sense that there was any delay in their response. There's no mention of them packing up their equipment or even rowing their boat to shore. The narrative that Matthew has crafted is suggestive in its silence on those details. The scene it suggests is curious and apocalyptic looking, as if strolling down that same beach an an hour after Jesus and the apostles had vacated the area, what you would see is an empty boat bobbing in the water with fishing nets floating around it. 
and you would wonder where everyone went. In James and John's case, you would see an older man sitting alone in a boat, apparently abandoned by his two sons, who, for all we know, jumped into the water and swam to shore when Jesus merely called to them from the beach. The immediacy of their response is quite strange. And making it more strange is what they left. In an instant, they abandoned a career and all the instruments and equipment they had acquired or invested in over the years. Fishing was a big industry around the Sea of Galilee, and fishermen were common. They were certainly not wealthy, but they were better off than many. They would have been comfortable. And yet, in an instant, they left it all when a stranger said to them, Follow me. And even more scandalous than their abandonment of a career was James and John's treatment of their father. In the Greco-Roman culture, they emphasize the importance of family far more than we do in the atomistic individual West in which we live. Multiple generations live together, and neglecting a parent was a shameful thing to do. It was an offense to not just the parent, but a threat to the fabric of society, and therefore it was socially condemned. And here are James and John leaving their father in a boat to go follow some man yelling at them from the beach. They demonstrate a shocking disregard for cultural expectations when Jesus comes calling. It's such a confusing response that some scholars have tried to make sense of the scene by proposing that perhaps James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were first cousins to Jesus. And in that case, the familial ties to Jesus would would soften the scandalous neglect of Zebedee and make sense of their immediate response to to his call. But Matthew never suggests such a relationship. And a proposal like that is just trying to tidy up the confusion that Matthew actually wants to force us to wrestle with. How can it be that these four men immediately abandon both careers and family when Jesus comes calling? We don't need to resort to fabricating a family tree to make sense of this confusing scene. It's not necessary. The story makes sense when we read it with our theological thinking caps on. Matthew has obviously intentionally left a ton of detail out of his story because you have to understand that Matthew, and this is true of all the Gospel writers, including Luke, who tends to to most meet our modern biographical standards with his extensive research and first-person interviews, But Matthew is not trying to provide a frame-by-frame account of the life of Jesus. Far from it. Matthew writes the historical events, the actual things that happened in Jesus' life theologically. Because Matthew is concerned to communicate the identity of Jesus Christ, the man he knew intimately, who was flesh and blood and yet also God. So Matthew leaves out the details that would resolve our confusion with this story because he wants us to think theologically about the confusion he has intentionally created with this naked narrative. And the result of pressing into the confusion that Matthew has created will be a better understanding of the identity of Jesus as Matthew knew him. The very goal that we have set for ourselves in this season of Epiphany. You see, when reading the Bible, the best way to read is with your ears wide open, listening for echoes or allusions, often from the Old Testament, that the author wishes you to pick up on. 
The echo is an effective and powerful method of communication because the author, by, by echoing some pre-existent idea or story, is able to adopt that original meaning and put it to use for their particular purposes without having to spend a ton of time explaining themselves. The echo communicates for them. An example of this that, that will be familiar to all of you is the, the campaign slogan that Donald Trump used to win the White House in 2016, Make America Great Again, or MAGA, right? You may already know this, but this slogan is actually not original to Donald Trump, but an echo of Ronald Reagan's 1980 presidential campaign, where Reagan ran for president under the slogan, Let's Make America Great Again. And by merely echoing Reagan's slogan and adopting it as his own, President Trump was allowing the echo to speak for him and tell the American people that they can expect him to be a new Reagan. Now, whether he's been successful at that, whether that was even a desirable goal in the first place, that's for you to decide. But the echo remains. The value of that tool remains. And Matthew is employing the echo as a tool in this confusing story in order to teach us about the identity of Jesus. The story's been read for you and recapped for you, and what do we hear? We hear Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, speaking, and we see an immediate response. He speaks, and his words accomplish what is spoken. Do you hear an echo at all? In the beginning, God said, let there be lights. And immediately there was light. On the shore of Galilee, God said, follow me. And immediately fishermen were turned into apostles. Immediately they left their careers and families and followed him. You see what Matthew is trying to tell you by creating this echo of Genesis 1 and the, the creation of the universe, don't you? He's trying to get us to see that Jesus Christ the stranger yelling on the beach is the eternal God through whom everything came into being in the first place. He is the powerful and effective Word of God through whom all things began and are sustained, and He is still creating. It began with His call to Peter and Andrew and James and John, but Jesus is creating a new community of redeemed ones, of called ones, in the midst of a fallen world. He's forming a new creation in the midst of the old. It is not insignificant that in Paul's letters to the Romans, the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, and the Thessalonians, in every single one of these letters, Paul refers to Christians as called ones, called to be saints. It's not just Paul, though, it's Peter, too. In 1 Peter 2, the apostle defines this new community that Jesus is creating. You are a chosen race, he writes, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He says, transition from darkness to light, from being orphans to the adopted children of God, from being objects of wrath to being recipients of divine mercy. These transitions all pivoted on the call of God. He called 
and in an instant you were changed. His voice did not return to him void, but it carried with it the soul of a people once disobedient and dead. As the theologian Sinclair Ferguson writes, God has done more than call his people in the sense of speaking to them. It was his calling that created them in the first place. His voice has a creative power. He calls and there is an immediate response in the soul of the believer, which is exactly what Matthew is trying to communicate to us with the confusing response of the first apostles. They respond immediately because Jesus is the creator and savior and he is calling into, a, into being a community of the redeemed. Even Jesus tells us that his voice is the means by which salvation begins in the heart of the believer. For what does Jesus say about himself as the good shepherd? He says, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought them out, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Following Jesus begins by hearing him, the good shepherd, calling us by name. Is he calling your name? Have you been wearily running from the good shepherd of your soul? And is it time to submit to him for a change? Well, perhaps you know he's called you and you initially responded with joy, but have you since become deaf to his voice amidst all the distractions and deceptions of this world? Too deceived by the wisdom of this world to listen to the folly of the cross any longer, the folly of our Creator any longer. The beginning of salvation is the call of Jesus Christ. Salvation begins in Him, which means that we have no ground for boasting. We can only point to Him, the great and merciful Shepherd who has called us out of His own divine and loving choice. All the glory belongs to Him. He calls and there's an immediate and joyous response of the soul within. And this may or may not be a response that corresponds with some dramatic outward event in the life of a person. Whether it's a response demonstrated by great outward change or the the quiet obedience of a person who's always known Jesus, always grew up in the church and known Him. The soul within for both leaps into the water of faith with abandon and immediate immediate obedience when it hears the voice of Jesus saying, follow me. The soul of the Christian is like Peter and Andrew, James and John, abandoning their nets and their family in an instant. Our Our priorities are immediately changed. There's an immediate response to the call of Jesus in the soul of the believer but a lifetime of listening to his voice calling us further in. As Christians, it's our responsibility to live into our calling and to realize it more and more in our lives. The Apostle Peter himself acknowledges this when he encourages his readers to be diligent to confirm your calling and election. So does the Apostle Paul when he declares that forgetting what is in my past, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. And he encourages us to do likewise, urging us to live lives that are worthy of the calling to which he has called you. He lived and died for us. He was raised to new life for us and ascended to the Father where he rules over us. 
He has mercifully called us to life in Him, but He is still involved in our lives. What is He still calling us to? He did all of these things for us, and now, having done all these wonderful things, He's calling us to happiness. (laughs) He wants us to be happy. But it's a happiness that differs greatly from how the world, or even how you, perhaps, might define or measure happiness. The happiness Jesus calls us to is holiness. Because He is holy. And we were created holy in the beginning. Holiness is a a restoration. Holiness is the fulfillment of the purpose for which we were created. Holiness is God-likeness. Humanity has always, from the very beginning, wanted to be like God. We want to defeat death. Well, God's eternal, living forever. He defeated death in Jesus Christ. We're haunted by our mistakes, our past mistakes, and we'll probably make more in the future, but God never does wrong. We want to be diverse and yet one. Well, this is the very nature of our triune God. We want to be like God, and it's a good goal to have. We always have and we always will, but we thought we could become like God apart from Him by throwing off His restrictions and prohibitions But we've become tragically unhappy in our pursuit of God-likeness apart from Him. And the good news is that we don't need to change our goal. The goal is still to be like God, but the way to happiness is not apart from Him, but in submission to Him. The way to happiness is holiness. It's through death and denial and discipline, the dreaded D-words. But this is what God is calling us to because He wants us to be happy and holiness is the street that leads to happiness. He calls us into being and then He calls us to be holy as He is holy. But His grace abounds all the more because He knows how difficult it is for us to die to ourselves, to deny ourselves, to discipline ourselves. And so He sent us His Spirit the Spirit of the living God to live within us and lead us in our pursuit of happiness and holiness. Where we are weak, the Spirit strengthens us. When we are tempted, the Spirit whispers to us and convicts us of our indulgence and courting of sin. When we are anxious, the Spirit gives us a peace that surpasses all understanding. The Spirit shows us our sin and leads us out of it. And when we are depressed, and lonely, and afraid, or ashamed, the Spirit reminds us of who we are in Christ. We are the called ones, called to be His children, called to be a new creation in the midst of the old, called to be the recipients of His mercy, called out of darkness into His marvelous light, called from death to life. Jesus has called to our souls saying, follow me. And he now leads us, a good shepherd, through death into eternal life and happiness. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Amen.